0: Thanks, Leonie. Uh, I've got a Bible open there in Matthew chapter 13. That's going to be helpful. Uh, I'm going to pray and we'll ask uh, for God to help us as we look at this part of his word together. Father, we thank you that you uh, want us to know you and that you've made that possible through your son, the Lord Jesus. I pray that today we might um, understand a little more of who you are, what it means to be your children. May you would have us uh, live in this world uh, to honour you, to please you and so we pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear this morning and hearts that are ready to respond and we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. Getting a different perspective uh, can very often change the way you feel about something, or a, a situation, uh, a circumstance of life and it's possible to have our perspective Readjust it. Sometimes all we need to do is to look at something from a different angle, uh, and that can be helpful to us, Um, even mind blowing. Uh, One of the things I like to do from time to time is uh, look at this is a bit of a nerd alert. uh, I'm quite into uh, space and solar system, this kind of thing, and it's a bit mind blowing when you just consider uh, the dimensions and the the scale in space. Um, I recently and I should have known this already, but I recently discovered that the Moon is a quarter of the width of the Earth. Did you know that? No, I thought it was much smaller than that, but it's actually very, very large. It's it's about the same, almost the same width as Australia. Australia would fit across the the width of the Moon. Now, this is one of my favourites. That's a comparison between the relative size of the Sun and the planets in our solar system. Uh, This is us here. Amazing, the size of our sun, isn't it? Good thing we're not that close to it. Now, sometimes stepping back and getting a big picture can give us a whole new appreciation of something. But it's also true that sometimes looking more intently, looking more closely, can do the same thing. Can anyone guess what that is? Hair, it is, specifically an eyelash. Pretty gross, isn't it? And what about this one? Actually, no one's gonna get this one. That's a, a kind of a, a very close-up image of the surface of a gecko's foot. <laughs> so those little baubly things there actually function as suction cups. That's how they can walk up walls and, and walk upside down. Sometimes we need to get our perspective readjusted. Uh, And we learn and our understanding of things grows as we look at things from different angles uh, and different distances it's true in science it's true in life but I want to suggest that the most valuable perspective any of us can have and any of us can be given is God's perspective and God wants to share his perspective with us he wants us to understand who he is He wants to reveal to us what he's doing in this world so that we would better understand who we are, who he is and our place within the world that God has made. Now this morning we're going to be looking at some of the parables that Jesus tells here in Matthew chapter 13. It's a cluster of parables which are all about the kingdom of God and they each provide us with a different insight, a different perspective on what God is doing in our world. And if we will let them, I think, They'll change our perspective on our own lives as well. Now Jesus often taught in parables. Um, a parable is basically a, a short story that illustrates something and the stories that Jesus tells here uh, are all about the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom that Jesus says he's come to bring, to make a reality in the world. Now the first and the longest of all the parables is the one we just had read for us starts there in verse 3 of chapter 13 and it's commonly called the parable of the sower although perhaps should more accurately be called the parable of the soils and it's a very familiar story I'm sure to anyone who's been to Sunday school um, and it goes this way uh, Jesus says a farmer goes out to sow his crop and as he scatters the seed the seed falls on four different kinds of soil uh, some of it falls on a path uh, and the birds snavel that up uh, the second kind falls on rocky ground and that, shallow, uh, that soil is shallow and so uh, the, uh, the plant initially springs up but it withers under the heat of the sun. The third falls among thorns which grow for a while but eventually it gets choked out by the weeds that grow around it. And the fourth soil is the good stuff. Uh, this is where it's meant to be. The seed grows and produces a healthy crop. Now, Jesus will go on to explain that parable a little later from verse 18 in chapter 13. He says that the four different kinds of soil actually represent four different kinds of people. And in particular, their response to the message that Jesus is bringing, the word, he calls it. The first three represent different responses which don't ultimately bear fruit. So the seed on the path, Jesus says, represents those people who, who want nothing to do with the message at all. They reject it outright. Satan comes and snatches away the message before they've even had a chance to listen to it properly. The rocky ground represents people who receive the message initially with enthusiasm, but when trouble comes, they walk away. And the thorny soil is similar to that, um, initially received with enthusiasm, but this time it's, it's the worries of life, Jesus says the deceitfulness of wealth, it comes and it chokes the faith out of a person. And finally, there's that good soil, those that hear and understand the gospel, grow up in faith and have fruit in their lives to show for it. Now, that's not terribly hard to understand, is it? And I'm sure you can probably think of people who fit with each of those descriptions, each of those soil types. And I think it's easy for us to relate to in some ways because the message about Jesus provokes the same response in people today, doesn't it? Some people reject it openly. Others are interested but don't really hang around. Um, others seemingly express a commitment to follow Jesus, but over time, the worries of life, perhaps the promises of wealth, suffocate their faith. Jesus tells this story to particularly help his disciples to understand to to interpret what they've been experiencing what they're seeing as they travel around with jesus the kinds of things that they themselves have been living through jesus and his disciples have seen many and varied responses to him and to the message that he's sharing with the world the message of the kingdom is provoking all kinds of responses it's dividing people some people are rejecting it violently Some are receiving it as a life-giving, life-changing message that it is. Others are being excited for a while and then wandering away. The disciples themselves are going to have their own very painful, close experience of this in a few months' time, when one of their own, their friend, their companion, Judas Iscariot, will decide that the persecution is too much to bear and that the promise of wealth is too much to resist. But he won't be the first or the last. And so Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for the fact that many people are not going to respond well to the good news of the kingdom. He wants them to appreciate that so that when they experience it, when they're confronted with it, they won't be discouraged. They won't think that they're doing something wrong or that somehow God isn't with them. He wants them to be able to persevere in serving him, even in the face of that kind of rejection and opposition. He wants them to have the right expectations. And that's something we need to remember too, I think. Because it's discouraging, isn't it, when we try, even with our own people efforts, to share our faith with others, to (laughs) invite people to consider the claims of Jesus try and explain to them who he is, why it matters and some people just seem so disinterested and others might seem interested for a time but give it away and in that process I think we can often feel so powerless, we can feel very ineffective and even afraid. But Jesus reminds us here that, that none of that should surprise us. We can be disappointed when we see others walk away Especially those that seem so interested to begin with. But Jesus says here, don't despair. Don't despair when people trade in following him for the pleasures and the comforts or the power that's available in this world. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't grieve when we see people that we love do that. It's okay for it to upset us, but we shouldn't despair. Because Jesus wants to set another expectation for us in this parable too. He wants us to expect to find that good soil as well. To expect to see that crop among some. See, just as the word is sure to fall on some hard and some rocky ground, so too does Jesus promise that it will fall on the good soil too. shouldn't surprise us when some people reject the message and walk away from Jesus. But it shouldn't surprise us when people don't either. One thing we can be sure of, if we never sow a crop, we'll never see a harvest. And so Jesus teaches us this parable to, I think, encourage us to keep spreading the word, to keep making the effort at sharing the good news about him with people that we know. Because there will always be those that God will move, to hear and to respond in true faith. God promises to be at work growing his kingdom, and he wants us to be involved in that work too. Now, lots of people assume that Jesus told parables to help people understand things more easily, and to some extent, that's true. I mean, Jesus uses in his teaching examples from everyday life, talks about family situations. He uses images from agriculture and business and even items from the kitchen pantry. Everyday things and things that people would have been familiar with. And Jesus uses those things to illustrate. Illustrate great truths about God and how he works in the world. And the parable of the sower is just one of those. And no doubt Jesus wanted to grab and capture the attention of his listeners But Jesus was never interested in pulling a crowd for its own sake or or simply to entertain people. Jesus' intent was always to teach and in particular to teach his disciples. His parables are designed to help us grasp something of God's perspective on the world. But at the same time, Jesus says here, curiously, that he's using parables for another reason. Strangely, here he says that he's using parables so that people won't be able to understand what he's talking about did you notice that in the reading we had earlier when jesus talks to his disciples about why he's teaching in parables he says to his disciples look you get it but other people don't and other people won't and then he quotes from the book of isaiah there in verses 13 to 15. have a look at this he says this is why i speak to them in parables though seeing they do not see Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Now, that's a bit confusing, isn't it? Jesus is saying that he's teaching people in parables so that they won't understand. I think in this way Jesus likens Himself to one of the the prophets of old, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah that Jesus goes on to quote here. See, God often sent His prophets to call His people back to repentance when they would wandered away from Him, but very often He sent them too to announce God's judgment upon them. And often their message came with a, a prediction that the people weren't going to listen to the prophets, they weren't going to respond. And God's judgment would fall and Jesus is saying that his parables function a little bit like one of those old prophetic judgments so that people's failure to hear and to respond to what he's teaching them is actually a confirmation of their hardness of heart because ultimately they don't want to listen because they don't know God and as we read through Matthew's Gospel That's what we see happening with Jesus and God's people. So many of God's people refuse to accept even what they can see with their eyes, what they can hear with their ears. They don't want to listen. And so Jesus here says that his parables are ultimately and primarily for those who believe, who respond in faith, so that they can better understand the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing and that they belong to. Primarily, his parables are for his disciples. He wants them to understand that even though they belong to the great and powerful kingdom of God, they can expect to experience opposition and rejection and hardship. And that's the perspective that so many of these parables bring for us it's God's perspective on what's going on in the world. Jesus wants to declare that God's kingdom is powerful, that it's real, that it's growing, but that it's not yet complete. And the other parables that Jesus tells in this chapter, and there's a bunch of them, if you've read through chapter 13, you'll see that. um, They all shed some further light on the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. So I want us to just have a quick look at a few of the other parables that Jesus taught, because they each bring something unique to the table for us. And so the first one that I want to think about is the idea that uh, the kingdom of God is priceless. And we already saw that with uh, the help of Coco, that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. If you found Jesus, you found a great treasure that is priceless. Both of the people in these stories end up selling everything they own to take possession of this one thing, this one thing that is beyond compare, that that is priceless. To know Jesus and to live for him is more important and more valuable than anything else in your life or anything else in this world that's why jesus is happy to demand from each of us our very lives he says you hand them over to me now not because we're worth it so much but because he is worth it secondly jesus says that his kingdom is a powerful thing from verse 31 jesus tells them another parable he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, Jesus doesn't actually explain these parables for us. But mustard seed and yeasts are both tiny things that end up having a huge impact on other things. A tiny amount of yeast can be added to a large amount of flour and its effect is significant. It makes the dough swell many times its original size. And so too a tiny seed can ultimately grow to become a great plant that supports numerous other living creatures. The kingdom of Jesus will often appeal, uh, appear to us to be small, to be, to be weak, perhaps unimpressive, sometimes to us, certainly to our world, but Jesus says his kingdom will grow, is growing, it is effective, and so it is. Because wherever the good news about Jesus goes, wherever his people go with it, it always has a transforming impact and influence on, well, firstly, individuals and on families and on communities and even on cultures. It's not always easy to perceive, not so obvious to see at first. It's like yeast, it's like a a seed that's growing, but give it time. It's a powerful thing. So the kingdom of God is powerful, it's priceless, and finally, it's, it's partial. Jesus told them another parable. Verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. Skip down to verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now this along with the parable of the soils is the other parable that Jesus actually explains for us in this chapter. He explains that the field is the world, that the wheat are his people. And so Jesus is here explaining that his kingdom and his people are going to exist alongside all the brokenness and corruption and pain of this world until the time of the harvest, until Jesus comes again. That time when God will ultimately separate what is his from what is not and make everything new. But that day has not come yet. That's not the time we live in. We live in the time where the the wheat and the weeds are growing together. And until that day, We can't expect that somehow we ourselves will be free of the effects of sin in this world. You may be part of the kingdom of Jesus, but you will still live in the world. And so that means life is going to be difficult. Life is going to be complicated. Again, this is the perspective Jesus wants to give us. He wants us to understand that, that sin will be a companion for us in this life. His kingdom is growing, it is advancing, but it won't be complete until Jesus returns. And so for us, the intention is not that we would remove ourselves from the world, but to be witnesses to the world with the life-giving message about Jesus. And as we do that, we can expect to see God work, to continue to do his work in people's lives as that seed falls on the good soil. Because that's how the kingdom grows that's how the kingdom has always grown as a church we want to see the kingdom grow we'd love to see our own church grow so how do we do that well it's not about adopting the latest and greatest strategy for church growth it's not about having the grandest church building and facilities or the best youth programs or having the very finest music. Not that there's wrong anything wrong with having any of those things, or striving to be excellent in how we do the things that we do as a church. But the fact is, every church already has what they need. That seed, the word, the good news about Jesus. That's what God says he will always use to bring about A harvest in people's lives and so God asks us to trust him in that to trust that that's his way of growing his kingdom and that's going to require us to be patient to be perseverant to be humble but we have to trust that it's ultimately through the message of Jesus that God's work is made effective in people's lives We shouldn't be surprised when people reject it jesus told us to expect that but we shouldn't be surprised when people accept it as well and rejoice with joy at receiving jesus as their own lord and savior and go on to bear fruit as he transforms their lives there will always be different kinds of soil in the world our job is to keep spreading the seed the good news about who Jesus is. So let me encourage you to keep doing that, to remember how priceless the kingdom is, that it's a powerful thing, that God's at work in this world. And for your part, keep persevering to see his kingdom grow in this world. We're going to respond in prayer, and uh, Indy's going to lead us in that.